This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. You're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, and I'm assistant editor here at Christianity Today, and I'm joined, as always, by Mark Alley. Hey. Mark, I think you're hitting your one-year anniversary of the show pretty soon. I am. Are you going to get me a cake or something? Yeah. Sure. What do you want? Well, no, 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 we can't do that. I think everyone knows I'm trying to lose weight, so forget that. Okay, well. Buy me an apple or a piece of celery. It's true, guys. Mark has lots of apples on his office table. They're pretty good sometimes. All right, Mark, who do we have with us? We have Haley Gray Scott. She's the director of the Kaleo Project at Denver Seminary, which focuses on enabling churches to build ministries that reach millennials. She's the author of Dare Mighty Things and most pertinent for our conversation today, as listeners will soon hear. She is currently working on a book that explores how men and women can forge effective partnerships in ministry. Hey, Haley, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Congratulations, Mark, on your almost year. There you go. Yeah. Where are you speaking to us from? I'm at Denver Seminary. So right now I've got a view of the Rocky Mountains. Oh my gosh. My wife would be jealous. She was raised with a view of, uh, she lived in the San Joaquin Valley. Her dad was a part-time grape farmer. So she had the view of the Sierras from her backyard window her whole growing up. And she was so depressed when she moved to Chicago, (laughs) the Midwest, especially when she discovered that the tallest point in the state of Illinois is a building in downtown Chicago. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I've actually been to that building when I was exiled in Michigan. I've been to that building and said, this is the highest place. Yeah. Exiled to Michigan. That's a pretty good one. How long have you been in Denver for? I've been in back in Denver for three years. So me and my husband have moved around quite a bit. I think I've counted about 15 times in 15 years of marriage. So, But we bought a house right by the Hogbacks, which are the precursor to the Rockies. So we're going to stay here for a little while. Oh, that sounds lovely. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. And now we will get into the bulk of the show. We are two weeks removed from a New York Times piece that broke news on something many in Hollywood had known for years. Producer Harvey Weinstein's long track record of sexual harassment against women in the industry. These revelations have sparked a national conversation about the relationship between men and women in the workplace and the prevalence of sexual assault, harassment, and unwanted attention. This news comes on accusations made against Bill Cosby, Bill O'Reilly, and Roger Ailes, all of whom who have lost jobs and certainly reputations. These stories together suggest a new awareness of the problem of sexual harassment, of how it has often been swept under the table, and of our society's new impatience with it. Although sexual immorality has been a recurring temptation among church leaders, charges of sexual harassment are more rare, Bill Gothard being the most recent case. Still, whether we're talking about the Christian or secular organizations in which Christians work, we need to understand the dynamics of sexual harassment and how to respond when we suspect folks of it. Before we get into our conversation today, I want to just remind all of our listeners that this podcast is made possible by everyone who subscribes to Christianity Today, to our magazine in particular. And our November issue is actually just days away from coming to people's mailboxes. And actually, we're going to be talking a lot about Museum of the Bible. 
Have you visited it yet, Mark? No, I haven't. I've heard, I've seen a quite an impressive demonstration about it at a conference. So I'm looking forward to visiting it someday. Yeah, I went to the Museum of the Bible last year, which doesn't look anything like I know it looks like right now. Um, but it was basically a construction site there. But they've been working on it for a number of years. And everything I can tell, because I've been to another conferences where they kind of like hype it up, the technology that they have there will be kind of state of the art. Yeah, so that's a plus and a minus in the sense it's a state of the art in 2017, but often state-of-the-art technology museums within 10 years feel so dated. So I'm hoping they're going to be able to... Wow, such a downer. (laughs) It hasn't even opened yet. Let me finish. I'm hoping they'll be able to keep on the cutting edge of it because that is one thing that will make it interesting. I think when I heard the presentation last in April, there was like actually a ride inside the museum. Oh, wow. There you go. Some next-level museum stuff, I will say. Anyway, so our cover story looks at this museum um, from one of one of my favorite writers, Martin Jones, who does a great job on these pieces. Yeah, he basically thinks about, okay, the museum there uh, is trying to present itself that to the country as uh, the, the Bible is a imp- hugely important artifact text for American history. And so the question, of course, is will people treat treated as such, or will they be able to go deeper than it merely being an ancient text that we used to think a lot about? Yeah. Anyway, if you want to read this piece that we have coming out, you can subscribe to CT at orderct.com slash quick to listen. That's orderct.com slash quick to listen, and you will get 10 issues for the entire year, because that's how many we do. You also get a copy of our latest issue about Museum of the Bible. So, Mark, before we start asking Haley all of our questions, I just wanted to get a gut check from you about when you heard this news about Harvey Weinstein. Well, I will have to admit that the name Harvey Weinstein didn't mean a whole lot to me. The fact that he was from Hollywood and he was doing this sort of thing in that cultural context, I'll be frank, I I didn't understand why it was such news, because the common rumor about Hollywood is this is the sort of thing that happens all the time. So it took me a while to figure out why it was such a big deal, why it was such a problem. But my immediate reaction was just to say, well, that's the kind of thing they do in Hollywood. I'm glad they're actually addressing it now, though. Yeah, I guess my gut reaction was in this original piece that the New York Times put out. It opens with Ashley Judd, who is, I don't know if I'd call her a household name, but she's a fairly well-known actress in Hollywood. And so that they were able to find someone who went on the record and who made themselves the lead of the story was was kind of like shocking to me. I would say I had heard of Harvey Weinstein's name before attached to different um, Academy Award-winning films. And so I think that's where I was also kind of like, wait, him? Even though your kind of cynicism about Hollywood wasn't that far outside of my mind. Um, And then just reading through the stories of just how lewd Harvey Weinstein's actions really were and kind of putting myself in the place of women who were around, who have been around my age, I think made me kind of just feel honestly like grossed out reading it. So yeah, not exactly my favorite thing to read about, that's for sure. But I'm really glad that we're going to talk about this more on the show today. Haley, I'm just wondering what has changed in recent years to convince culture at large to care about sexual harassment? There are several factors that are probably playing into that. I think that there is, first of all, there is a opportunity for people who have not had a platform to speak to be able to speak with speak very loudly and they do that through social media so used to if you didn't have access to you know being able to get your story out there or to be able to tell your story you have access now 
typing into your computer. Automatic access to a huge audience. You can get your word out there to the whole world. So that's definitely playing into this ability for um, people to start looking at sexual assault victims because people are coming forward and talking about it. A second thing would be the movement towards social justice in our culture, where we're starting to think about the things that are wrong in our culture, the different injustices, and we're trying to do our best to alleviate those injustices or correct those injustices. So I would think that those are two different dynamics that are kind of playing into this where Previously, sexual assault victims were very quiet and did not come forward. They're able to do so now because it's a it's a more uh, welcoming environment than it previous previously has been. And I just discovered this morning in some reading that was actually not intended to be related to this conversation, but that the sexual harassment laws were not actually put into effect until the early to late 1970s. So up until then, anyway, people may have just mentally thought of it as bad behavior, bad manners. <clears throat> but with the Im- impress of the law behind it, it, uh, it raises the profile of this type of behavior so that uh, people recognize that something serious is going on here that needs to be addressed. So I think that, that of course, that was 30 years ago now, uh, but it does take a while for that type of thing to filter down to down to people. Absolutely. And if you think about 1970s, okay, women really didn't come into the workforce working alongside men until the late 1960s. So it would have taken, if you think about the time of change and um, how long it takes for change to adapt, it would have taken until the 1970s. So yeah, that sounds surprising, but then women weren't really working alongside men in in, in a corporate environment you know, ever until the 1960s. Is there like a certain type of atmosphere or certain type of like cultural norms in a workplace where there's like a higher propensity of sexual harassment that's going to occur? You know, I can't think of particular environments. I think that there are environments that may be more inclined to do that. Such The immediate thing that I think of is for some reason, as fitness gyms, fitness environments. Also, you know, entertainment types like Hollywood. Like you, Mark, when I first heard this story, I was not surprised at all. I'm like, okay, this is Hollywood. Isn't that what always happens? I mean, I was not surprised. So I would think that maybe environments that are more concerned with appearance and things like that. I I would imagine that places where people are more obsessed with the bottom line, I guess, because then folks that do have bullying-like tendencies feel like they can get away with things without impunity because of the fact that the company is really obsessed with making money, for instance, and that it might be harder to fire someone who has poor character or speak out against someone like that who is also really successful for the company as well. Um, So maybe to that extent, like personality-driven industries can make it more challenging. Or industries where there's a tremendous amount of competition between corporations, but also in the corporation. For example, a lot of businesses pit their salesmen against one another in a very competitive environment. So the ones who are the most competitive, the most aggressive, tend to rise to the top. That appeals to a certain type of personality. I think that's a great point. The personality-driven aspects as far as if you're someone who is, you know, you're important to the company and the company might not survive without you, you may feel like you have more power than other people and that you can get away with things that other people might not get away with. 
you know, additionally, the type, Mark, like the type of personalities that you were talking about, the, the aggressiveness, that aggressiveness may translate over to different areas of their life besides just the business aspects. One thing that's kind of come up as a secondary conversation is everyone who knew about and kind of enabled this type of behavior. And as we are thinking about the enabling thing and just connecting it to what we were just talking about, about, you know, people who feel like they are invaluable to the company and then they can get away with things. It also makes it really challenging for people who might want to speak out against something, not only because they may fear losing their jobs, but because they might also feel like they're somehow damaging their company or putting their own company at risk in some ways. Right. There's always the fear of being the whistleblower. I mean, if you look at the way that whistleblowers have been treated, you know, it is definitely risky to be that whistleblower. And that's why certain companies have protections for whistleblowers, for people to be able to speak out against certain behaviors. You know, Mark, you had written in our show notes about enabling and how it differs from like discretion and withholding judgment. What were your own thoughts about that? Well, there, it seems to me that there is a reality called enabling. That is to say, you know something's a problem, and for whatever reason, you, do, you say nothing about it. There's also a moment when you look at something, you say, I'm not sure something's a problem, and uh, the better part of discretion is not to say anything because you don't want to start an ugly rumor, or you don't want to embarrass someone needlessly if you're just misinterpreting the situation. Uh, there's also kind of a culture of not judging other people that has grown up both in the church and outside of the church, which I think obviously is pretty healthy in some respects, but kind of uh, pathological in others if we, in fact, we don't judge people for doing something that's really wrong. I think you make a really great distinction there. I mean, enabling behavior is when you absolutely know that something's going on, that something's wrong, and you're not doing anything about it. And you're not, and you may even be helping it to continue in some way. You're actually helping it to continue by not saying anything at all. That's when you absolutely know. There are times in, you know, my career when I have known that there are things that are going wrong, that there are things going wrong in the company, and it has been really difficult to speak out. But you know, I have done so. And it really rocks the boat when you do that. And then there are other times when you may not know what's going on. Your intuition or your gut may be like, what's going on between this person and that person? I'm really not sure if it's appropriate. Is this person being mistreated? What's going on with this situation? I may not you may not have full access to what is actually happening. And then if you say something and you're not really sure of what's happening, it could really cause, you know, a lot of damage and, like you said, a lot of embarrassment. So I would think that the difference between enabling and discretion is enabling is when you definitely know that something's happening and you don't say anything about it. And that takes a certain amount of self uh, honest self-examination because I think we've all been in situations where as we look back on the situation, and it may not have to do with uh, enabling sexual harassment, but it may be enabling some sort of be other behavior in another context in your family or in your classroom. You you have a feeling that there's something wrong here, but you your mind refuses to let you think about it. And then right. it's only months after the whole thing evolves that you go, you know, I think I knew about that and I just didn't, I didn't even want to address it. So there's that part of us as well that's kind of mysterious. There are times and situations whenever people, for some reason, they have they have their blinders on and they have them on purpose. It's sort of like a self-protection me measure because if you have your blinders on, then you're not going to be accountable for understanding what's going on in the situation and actually calling people to account. And so you purposely 
have those blinders on so that you're not you're you're actually protecting yourself in a way. Part of what happened, and I think Mark is alluding to this, is that when something is initially going awry at a company, I think we may have our antenna attuned to that. But there's a certain level of dysfunction that I think we all learn to kind of accept and just kind of see as normal, you know, within the organization or company that we're a part of. And so I'm just wondering, what advice would you have for us to kind of just check what we see as normal so that we don't just kind of end up drinking the Kool-Aid of the office culture that we're a part of? In Christian organizations, there, you know, I've worked in Christian organizations for 20 years, and there's a tendency to think, everybody's going, every, everybody's doing everything right, right? Everybody's trying to do the right thing. Everybody's trying to do the godly thing. And so it's all, often a flip side of where it's harder to imagine someone's actually doing something wrong. So you end up having that discretion moment where you're thinking, is something going wrong? I'm not sure if it is. It can't be. It can't possibly be happening. Um, in secular organizations, there is a tendency to just accept a certain level of sexual impropriety as just flirting or just goofing off or someone having a good time. And the judgment call comes for, you know, it's it's different. I would say that there's a distinction in Christian organizations versus non-Christian organizations. And in Christian organizations, it takes a lot of discernment and careful prayer in considering a situation that, that has come to your attention to keep looking at it, to keep praying about it until you feel like you have enough information to come forward and present that. And you have to do that with principle. You have to do that with conviction and with courage just to say, this is the right thing. I may be helping people along the road. I'm helping in a, in a situation of sexual harassment. For example, you would be saying, I'm helping the person actually who's doing the harassment by helping them draw come to accountability for their behavior and, and actually maybe perhaps put them on the path to recovery. And then you're also helping helping the person who's being harassed who may not feel like they are able to to speak out about something because they're afraid of, like you said earlier, Morgan, losing their job. So there's that sense of courage and principle that can drive you to actually speak out and to draw attention to a matter. If you're the person that's being harassed, it's actually a little bit harder to come forward because you have a lot of different elements that are that are conflicting, that are prohibiting you from actually coming forward, besides just the fear of being the whistleblower. I love your emphasis on the redemptive perspective. That is to say, and the way the press handles most of these cases is, the point is to catch the perpetrator and punish him. And I think a Christian, if something has really been done wrong, of course someone should face the consequences for that. But I think the, our ultimate purpose is always to help the harasser as well as the harassed. Absolutely. Yeah, because at some point there is some level of dysfunction there and there's some level of something that has happened along the way to to make that person into who they are and how can they if they're living in that dysfunction that's sort of a living hell in a way because they're they're living with a significant level of disorder in their personal lives and that's traumatic and it's hard for people to come to terms and you want that person to experience the redemptive freedom in Christ and you want the person that's being harassed to actually experience that you know same redeeming factor but in a different way again i'm not trying to excuse any of these men that have been mentioned and others 
who participate in this behavior. But I don't think that uh, our culture, I know many women I speak to, don't appreciate how, the, how powerful sexual temptation is for men and how, how hard of it is for them to bring it under some sort of level of decency and control. And some men just never learn how to do that until they are, in fact, confronted like this. So this is not meant to excuse them, but to help people understand at one level, are, a lot of these men are struggling with, with things going on inside of them that are extremely powerful, and they just don't know what to do with them. And they need someone to come along and say, hey, what you're doing is really stupid and wrong, so you've got to stop it. They, men are just sometimes so stupid, they need to be hit over the head with a hammer sometimes in order to get their act together. And uh, so a uh, confrontation of a harassing situation can sometimes be the most healing thing that can happen for a man. You know, I spent two years talking to men about what they think about working with Christian women and what are the big barriers, because, you know, more and more women are coming into the Christian workplace. You know, Willow Creek just put in a male-female lead pastor team. So how do those dynamics work? How do men and women work together? And I asked men about this, and you wouldn't believe the number of them that said, you know, Haley, I believe in women leaders. I want to walk alongside them. I want to encourage them in every way that I can. But you know what? When I was a teenager, I was addicted to pornography. And it totally destroyed and warped my mind about the, the way women are and who women are. And I just, I haven't been healed from that yet. And to hear their pain and to hear them, from their perspective, it really helped me to understand, okay, this is where men are coming from. Now, translating that to women is going to be a difficult task for me. So, you know, that's one of the things that has stumped me for this whole time. How do I make this okay? How do you bridge this gap? Because we live in a hyper-sexualized culture where everything is sexualized so that even if something is not sexual, we sexualize it. And how do you desexualize your working relationship with with uh, the opposite sex? You can't. I think we have to be honest about sexuality and just lay it on the table and say, look, this is we live in a hyper-sexualized culture. There are going to be issues. Let's do our best to try to be a godly workplace even in the midst of this. But Mark, you're so right. I mean, I really do have a lot. I mean, I am a sexual assault victim. So for me to be able to say, I feel deep compassion for the way that men struggle in our society, because I've listened to their stories and and I've heard heard it from from their voices. And it's it's very difficult thing to do in our in our culture. This episode is brought to you in part by Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. Over 13,000 people in the Seattle area are homeless. Kathy is one of many who found a new life through Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. Growing up, my dad and I didn't get along. I kept running away from home until one time I was assaulted. After that, I carried a lot of pain inside of me, and I was doing a lot of drugs. I became homeless. It's taken me almost 40 years to get the healing I needed. But all along, God was looking out for me. He led me to the mission, and the mission has helped me in all kinds of ways. I've learned how to set boundaries and say no. Now I'm looking forward to working for the mission. I want people to know there's hope out there. God can help you heal. And grace will lead. 
volunteer or donate, visit UGM.org. I'm wondering, earlier this year, we had a big other national conversation about the Billy Graham rule, which some people will remember, or was revealed in an article about Mike Pence, that he only eats or is in the presence, or in the presence, like, I guess, like... He won't go to lunch with a woman by himself, and he will not go on an elevator with a woman by himself. Yeah, so that was, that made national news that Mike Pence followed that, um, and there was a lot of pushback on Mike Pence's decision, um, both from, you know, people who are not Christians at all, but also from a fair number of Christian women and some Christian men. Um, And then obviously with all this Harvey Weinstein news, we've seen a lot of people just react in disgust from there. So I'm wondering between those like very far away um, continuums, (laughs) what does a healthy workplace environment look like for men and women especially drawing on the research that you've done? It's a, it's a, it's a great question. Um, there, most of the men that I talked to referred to the Billy Graham rule. Now, I spoke with men in three different areas, church, parachurch, and Christian education. And I did a cross-sectional thing of the United States. I drew from the Northeast, the Southeast, the Midwest, the Southwest, and the Northwest. And I talked to men in these three areas across the country, and all of them talked about the Billy Graham rule. And they do it in a way, when they talk about it, they talk about it as a way of not trying to prohibit women from becoming leaders, but in a way of protecting themselves from sexual misconduct protecting them the way that people perceive them in general and then you know trying not to make anything seem untowardly I guess and then also to honor their wives that's the reasons that they gave and you know you see also the Billy Graham rule not called the Billy Graham rule but even on Capitol Hill where men refuse to work or meet alone with women because of the large number of false sexual harassment complaints. So women can't grow as leaders if men are the ultimate, you know, men are the top leaders in almost every organization. And in order for women to to succeed in organizations and to grow, most of that happens in informal networking, at lunch, in the elevator, in the bathrooms. I, You know, I've talked to women who's like, I feel excluded because of all the conversations that went on in the bathroom at conferences. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, you know, so. Well, I can just assure you they're not that interesting (laughs) or important at Seek Christianity Today. That's good to know. Um, But um, one of the best things that I heard was from John Ortberg. He talked about how he sets organizational policies so that, it's not an individual man saying, um, sorry, I'm not going to meet with a woman, but it's an organizational policy saying, because we are a Christian organization, we are concerned about godly behavior, godly conduct. Therefore, man and woman will never travel alone. So when you come into an organization, you understand that this is part of the organizational policy for godly conduct. And so it's not one man saying to one woman, I'm not going to meet you for lunch. And so, Because what happens when that happens is the woman feels instantly sexualized, instantly demoralized whenever that is communicated. And so one way to do that is just to think as an organization, how are we going to proactively cultivate mentoring relationships between men and women that don't 
you know, that aren't going to cross any boundaries? How can we support that? How can we support that architecturally? Just by putting windows into an office is just one simple way to do that. You know, being honest about some of the issues that that are going on in culture, the sexual harassment, the reasons why we are setting these certain policies, you're going to say, okay, we want to honor godly sexual conduct. We want to commit ourselves to godly sexual conduct. And yet at the same time, we don't want to disenfranchise women who have leadership capabilities that will benefit our organization. So how can we as an organization start creating and cultivating relationships that are godly within our context? And that's going to look different depending on the organization. Some of these problems are solved very simply. Uh, It isn't rocket science to put a window in your office door, you know, things like that. Uh, It isn't rocket science to figure out policies on travel. And like you're saying, if everything's set up front, then it doesn't feel like any particular woman or women in general are being singled out. It's a policy to make sure that we as Christians in this company act above board and look above board. It's very simple. Right. Because how many, okay, just realistically, how many Christian leaders have been torn down by sexual assault claims or even fraudulent or real? You can go through Google. I have gone through Google and looked at, you know, pastors violating, pastors being jailed for this, sexual harassment or this. I mean, there's endless Google results on this. So we need to be above board. We need to be different from the culture in some way in godly conduct because we're in such a hyper-sexualized culture. We need to be distinctive. We need to show that there's a better way. So we do need to be above board. And yet we also need to try to think about how can we be above board and help women who are, you know, gifted to lead, come along and cultivate and thrive in an, within our organization. So on social media this past week, we saw many women share their stories of being sexually harassed or sexually assaulted or subject to unwanted advantages on Twitter under the hashtag MeToo. And I'm just wondering, Haley, what do you think that, you know, Christian women who have gone through these experiences need to hear from Christian men at this time? You know, I wrote my personal story of sexual assault a few years ago for Christianity Today. And it was the first time that I came forward. It took nearly 20 years for me to be able to talk about it. It's a very difficult subject for women to discuss. It is very difficult for women to to come forward because the act of sexual assault is ultimately an act of vulnerability. And to tell your story is also to be vulnerable. You can think about this even if you're not a sexual assault victim. If you put something up on Facebook and nobody likes your post, you feel very vulnerable. And you're checking it and you're thinking, what? You know. And so to be able to put your story out there, to be able to tell that story is also a, is, is a vulnerable act. And it, and it uh, physiologically, it's hard to imagine if you're not a victim yourself, but it physiologically reminds you of the the assault because you are so deeply vulnerable. So I wrote my story and shared it, and I spoke about Me Too as well. And then today I also um, put up on social media a tribute to the men in my life that have nurtured me, guided me, because 
that one act of sexual assault, that's just one man in hundreds that have come alongside me and supported me. And the men that have come alongside me, I think, have given the best messages that I could possibly have hoped for. And those are messages of, you know, we care about you. We want to protect you. We want to support you. We are here to, as your brother in Christ. Those are different messages depending on the type of relationship you have with a person. You know, the type of, you know, messages that my husband sends of deep encouragement and deep support are different from the messages that I got from mentors who they supported me in different ways. They encouraged me in my career path. They encouraged me to be um, bold in my testimony. They encouraged me to 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 think deeply about God's love. They were models of godly men when I was afraid of men. And so the message that men can give to women is that that there are godly men, that there are men that are that are there to, you know, to be Jesus in their lives. You know, we're all called to be like Christ to one another. And that's the message that that men can can give to women who have suffered sexual assault, because it's often difficult for women who've been sexually assaulted to accept that for men. And to have that continued presence, continued godly presence is just so deeply healing and is probably the most important thing that men can do for women who've been sexually assaulted. I'm assuming, too, it also really matters a lot that they believe you at your word. Absolutely. You know, I get frustrated when I hear in the news something about false sexual assault claims, because what that does is every time a woman comes forward with a false account, it makes the women that are actually victims that much harder to be heard. And for men and women alike, because women too have their doubts sometimes, you know, if you say, I've been a victim of sexual assault. There is, for women, there's the same temptation for women to, to also disbelieve. But to to say that you believe them, that you believe their story, that you trust their narrative, the things that they've been through is a tremendous way of supporting them. Thank you so much, Haley, for sharing all of that with our audience. I really appreciate this perspective that you've brought to our show. And anyone who would like to chime into the conversation, I suggest that you do it on our social media channels. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcasts and on Twitter at ctpodcasts. Now is the time of the show that we call Slow to Speak, which is when we share feedback that we've gotten from previous shows. So, Mark... You want to recap really briefly what we talked about on our show last week? So we talked about Lecrae disowning the name evangelical, and we talked with Dr. Carl Ellis about his perspective on that and trying to understand that's from a, especially from a a, a, a devout, believing black person's perspective, of, of which both Lecrae and Dr. Ellis are. And it was, I thought it was a very helpful conversation to unpack a lot of what's going on. Yeah. So I think at one point you had asked a question on there about what systemic racial discrimination looked like within the church. And so we had one listener who just shared another example of that. Do you want to read that piece of feedback? Yeah, he said, one area of systematic racial discrimination within the church is the practice of hiring only within the friends and personal networks. This is a problem because most leaders or ministers, personal networks are filled with people of their same race. So that's just a fact of human existence that does inadvertently contribute to some of the divisions we have, uh, not necessarily with rancor and tension, but it does end up dividing us sometimes more than it needs to. 
And that was from Marvin McNeese Jr. So thank you, Marvin, for sharing that. We had another piece of feedback from Daniel Chamberlain. He said, I really appreciate your guys' discussion. I found it to be insightful as well as refreshing. And from this black man's perspective, affirming in some of the ways that I have felt as of late. Excellent work. So thank you so much, Daniel, for also listening. And thank you for everyone else who is listening to the show. We've gotten a lot of love out there. I also want to just let people know that we are interested in sharing love with other podcasts that are out there. And so if you are aware of other podcasts that you think people would enjoy and appreciate, but maybe are not getting the type of hits or exposure that they could need, please also go on social media and share that with us. We'd like to have stuff to be able to shout out in upcoming episodes. So yeah, if you have a podcast that you would like to to see get more attention or exposure, please tag us on social media and do that as well. Now we are going to do Precious Moments. That's when I ask everyone to share something that is bringing them joy this week and also where they can be found online. Mark, do you want to go? I do. Give me a second. <laughs> Haley, if you have something, you can go. Um, actually, right now, the trees in Denver are stunning. And every time I drive home, I drive west towards the mountain and the sun is setting and as I'm driving, I'm driving through, it feels like I'm driving through a rainbow because the sun is shining through all the colored leaves. So we have yellows and oranges and reds and the sun is shining through that. And every time I drive through, I'm just awestruck at the beauty and it, it gives me great joy. Just driving home from work. That sounds awesome. I would love that too. And the air is probably really crisp and nice as well. It is. We have had some of the the uh, smoke from the fires in on the West Coast, but most days have been clear and it's just gorgeous fall here in Denver. Awesome. Are you online at all? I am. I'm at hgscott.com. You can also find me on uh, Twitter at hgscott and I'm on Facebook as well. Lovely. All right, Mark? Yeah, this is kind of mundane, but I was listening to a, a podcast last night, and the, uh, the speaker was talking about what a miracle it is that things work, that we live in a society in which things work. The plumbing works, electricity works, roads are paved for the most, most part, unless you live in Los Angeles and other ungodly places. <laughs> <laughs> uh, people can get from one place to another fairly efficiently, and we tend to take this for granted as if this is just our natural right and this is the way the world works. But if you think about other parts of the world and world history, this is an amazing time that we can expect so many things to work. With all and due respect they, to the Roman Empire. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and that we can pick up the phone and it always works. And we open our computer and it always works. Now, of course, when a program takes more than two seconds to load, we get really frustrated because we're used to things working instantly. I was going to say the default is that stuff works, yeah. right? As opposed to the, def the default being that things are always broken. Yeah. I'm reading uh, Little House on the Prairie with my kids, and we are in that sense of wonder around us, like, oh my gosh, we have so much stuff that they don't have. My kids are like, what? That you had to go to the creek for water? You know? <laughs> so it's just amazing that you can turn on the faucet and water comes out. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Mark, what podcast was that? Podcast with this guy I've been listening to a lot lately, Jordan Peterson. But it wasn't about that. He was just mentioning that as an aside cool. to make another point. Cool. All right. Are you online? Yes. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. I actually I actually reply to direct tweets to me. Might not be timely, but I'll do it within a few days. Sometimes it takes a week. And then I publish something called The Galley Report. 
G-A-L-L-I report, uh, which can be found at christianitytoday.com slash thegalleyreport, in which I link to articles I have found interesting and comment on them. All right. My precious moment, something that hasn't happened, but I've been excited for a long time, and I'm going to my college this week for homecoming. And in particular, I'm really looking forward to going over to my first-year seminar professor's house on Friday night and being with some of the people who were in that same class with me nine years ago. (laughs) And who is this professor? Her name is Jennifer Billman, and she was a biology professor that actually um, ended up also teaching English. We were all in a class called In Pursuit of Green together, where we discussed the environment and also consumerism. So the green went both ways. Um, And it was really just kind of interesting look at what we would call now affluenza um, and just wanting stuff. In fact, it, the class inspired me to not shop at the mall for the entire year. So I took a break of that in 2009. That's great. It's probably attainable, and I should probably do it again, to be honest. My daughter went on a fast once from not sh- just not shopping on Sundays, which is a lot harder to do than you'd imagine. Good for her. Yeah. Yeah, so that'll be fun for us to all be reunited, and I'm sure something from that will also be a precious moment next week. So that is it for us this week. I guess I should just add, you can follow me on Twitter at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. But thank you so much to all the listeners of Quick to Listen. I just wanted to let everyone know that now, which is um, October 19th, until Thursday, the 16th, we are asking for people to leave reviews on Apple Podcasts. If we get 50 reviews over this next month, Mark and I have something for you, which is this. In your review, if you leave a question there that Mark, you would like Mark or I to answer, we will do a special edition podcast as part of that where we answer all the questions within reason. Is that what we agreed on, Mark? (laughs) Questions we think would be appropriate to answer online. Yeah. So people should know that when they're asking questions. But yes, if we get 50 of them, if and only if we get 50 reviews over this next month, then we will do that. Thank you to everyone who has already rated and reviewed the show on Apple Podcasts. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And it is produced by Richard Clark and edited by Cray Alred and also produced by me. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the show. And we'll see you all next week. 